0: with the unconditional self-acceptance, a lot of it is accepting the parts that you want to hide. I think I felt like if I could keep looking at what was wrong and keep fixing it and improving it, then I could be almost perfect, which never worked out.
1: Goodbye diets and hello, sustainable health. I'm Elise, dietitian and nutritionist based in the Silicon Valley. I believe that we all deserve an effortless relationship with food without obsession. You guys, I am so excited. Today, I had the absolute pleasure of welcoming Beatrice Kamau to the show, and you might know her from the Self-Love Fix podcast, and if you don't, I don't know what you're doing because you need to get on it. I first stumbled upon her podcast earlier this year, and her content makes you rethink who you are and your relationship with yourself. She will help you embody deep levels of self-worth acceptance, and worthiness to call in a life you love. Ready to fall in love with yourself and Beatrice? Welcome Beatrice to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I am so beyond excited to have you on because I think what you do is so powerful, your work with self-worth and self-love and embodiment. I would love to hear from you. How did you end up doing what you do now?
0: Yeah, thank you. So A long story short, when I was in grad school, uh, I realized I had an issue with perfectionism. Uh, And and when I say issue, I mean, it was taking over my life if I wasn't the best at everything or, you know, just that one little comment I would get from a preceptor or um, even from a teacher or a professor. It's like. My entire world would come crashing down. And so I was, I had a moment where I was wondering why I wonder why I feel this way about myself because I was so used to blaming myself for things. I never thought about, you know, did this actually come from me? This, this pattern that seems to be having such a hold on me. So I discovered a couple of things about my childhood in grad school. And I was like, whoa, well, whoa. Like everything just started changing for me. I started going to therapy. I started, um, really exploring how can I shift the way that I see myself and how can I almost uh, reclaim my own identity and reform it, for lack of better words. And initially, it was always just going to be a thing for myself just to get through grad school. And then afterwards, I realized, you know what, I can't be the only one who has gone through the type of childhood I went through or who struggles with perfectionism or self-doubt. So then
1: I created a podcast and I guess the rest is kind of history. What a story. I would love to hear from you as well. You know, where are you from? Where did you grow up? What was that like?
0: Yeah. So I originally, I kind of hopped around a lot as a kid, Um, I spent some time in Hayward union city. It's literally like a slew of cities, but, um, the Bay area, I don't know if you're familiar with, are you, do you live in California? Yes. I'm in Sunnyvale
1: and I used to live in Berkeley. Mm -hmm.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah. So then, you know, like the Bay area, I was there for, uh, up until age eight and then bouncing around other cities in Northern California. It was really, it was great. I feel like I had friends from all places. My childhood was very, I just remember that aspect of it, like living there or living here, because I live here now, was just very bright and fun. And there was so much to do, even as a kid. And I remember that being a big distinction. Um, growing up in the Bay Area versus when I moved over to, like I lived in like up and Stockton um, for a little while. I did not experience the same diversity. And as a result, I feel it's almost like the way people viewed people was different. Like in the Bay Area, when I, what I remember when I was a kid is how accepting everyone was, um, even as children. I, I had never really experienced like this sort of, uh, oh, you're different. Or why does your hair look like this? Or anything like that as a kid, because there was so much diversity.
1: It's interesting you say that. I had the reverse Beatrice where really? <laughs> I grew up in specifically Marin County and Mill Valley. So oh. north of SF, it was like 99% white. And then I was one of three Asian kids. Oh. And so I always thought I was so different and I didn't feel like I belonged at all. And then I went to college at Cal in Berkeley and I was like, diversity, where has this been all of my life?
0: It's so interesting how everybody has different experiences and how even within the Bay Area, there's just little
1: nuanced experiences. I think for me, growing up in such a homogenous neighborhood, that's where my self-worth was so low or that's when my confidence never got built as a child. As a child, I felt like that area of my life, that, that aspect of who I was, was really blunted. I just tried to fit in. I never thought I was cool enough. I never thought I was interesting enough. And so I would say I was a late bloomer because of the lack of diversity I had in those pivotal years. So it was mm-hmm. only college and grad school where I developed my voice and my confidence. When did you start to develop your voice and your confidence? That's a good question.
0: I feel like I was trying to find my footing in college. I went to UC Davis and I found myself trying to find my footing with confidence. I think I found a lot of my confidence was rooted in how people responded to me. So when they responded well to me or they liked something about me, that's when I felt confident. But then when they didn't, it would just come crashing down. I would say right after I finished grad school when I really just started looking inward and looking at what I liked about myself and what I had to offer the world. And I started to believe it and,
1: and validate it. Mm -hmm. That was when it, started. It's so interesting how we both kind of, yeah, we're late bloomers in that sense. We took a deep look later on in our twenties. Where do you think it came from that sort of perfectionist tendency that you used to have? For me, the perfectionist tendency,
0: I think it was, I identified it as my upbringing, the way I was brought up. It was like, there was a lot of hyper-focus on making sure everything was right and making sure I looked a certain way in the eyes of other people. And there was so much emphasis on what I was doing wrong that I was more focused on that within myself. Like, okay, what's wrong? It was always what's wrong, not what's going right within myself. So I, I think I felt like if I could keep looking at what was wrong and keep fixing it and improving it, then I could be almost perfect. Which never worked out, but yeah, and I look back at it like I always say, my parents did the best that they could with what they knew, and I recognize it really impacted me. And and I'd be lying if I said it doesn't still. In a in a sense of in life, you always have moments of doubt and insecurity. But the way it looks for me now is as opposed to ninety nine percent of the time, I feel doubt and insecurity. It's more like it's a moment here or a moment there. And then I just kind of have to really
1: remind myself of who I am. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's like a daily practice. It's chipping away every single day, these things. Yeah. Because my work is focused so much on body image, food and intuitive eating. I'm wondering, did those sort of insecurities bleed into any of those areas for you growing up?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I would say for sure. I, so I had always been thinner growing up, uh, just genetically. That's how I always was. And it's not so for all of like the women in my family. Um, I guess maybe it came from my dad's side of the family or something, but I do know that as I got older, obviously hormonally things changed. And so in high school and in college, I started to gain more weight and, I would hear comments about that. Yeah. From family. And it, it was, there was an obsession that hit in college with being thin for sure. Um, A lot of exercising and eating that wasn't favoring me because I would look at food as something, I don't know. It was like, almost like my enemy. So it, it definitely bled into that. I think like the first two years of college and then later I, I, looked at food differently, I began to have a better relationship with it, which is why I became a dietitian. Um, it definitely impacted the way I saw myself.
1: Did I hear you right? You became a dietitian too?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you? I gonna, no, I was going to say, I know you are one. And a lot of people don't know that. That's what I went to. Yeah. I um, finished my dietetic internship and grad school at the same time. Oh my gosh, what a small world. I did not know that about you. Yeah, that's part of the reason why I became a dietitian because of the how my relationship with food changed. Mm.
1: Yeah. I always say dietitians usually have a pretty colorful relationship with food. Some, <laughs> most, not all, but this really hits. So as you were deep diving into this stuff for yourself, um, what did you realize over time? I learned about intuitive eating and
0: mindful eating in grad school actually. And I remember looking at it like, wow, this is something I had learned growing up Mm -hmm. and then lost my way in college because I was trying to, you know, be thinner or keep a certain weight. I had always, luckily I I grew up in a home where my parents were like, you know, okay, if you're full, you're full. Or it was never like food wasn't forced. It was generally, I would pay attention to how do I feel? Mm -hmm. In grad school, I recognized that this would be an amazing tool to implement with when I was working with patients and things like that is healing your relationship with food Mm -hmm. and trusting that your body can actually let you know when it's hungry or when it's full things like that.
1: From the get, I think you were going deeper. You've always kind of been digging deeper, huh? Layer by layer.
0: Yeah. I feel like it now that I think about it. You know, it's funny how I went from food to more of like the looking at self-worth from a mindset perspective. Yeah. But then it it did. It started out with food.
1: What was the path you took after you became a dietitian?
0: Yeah. So I was working as a dietitian and then I was doing the podcast and then I, I started getting into the idea of doing coaching. So I would do coaching on the side with clients, and then go to work like normal. I had only worked three to four days out of a week at one point, like I got to a point where I could do that with my job. I slowly sort of made this transition from working full time,
1: part time, and then going into coaching full time. When you started to coach, how did you make the jump from being more food, intuitive eating focus to the self-worth piece? Why did you feel the need to jump?
0: I looked at it like, I feel like I'm one of those people that is interested in a lot of topics. Maybe you're the same. Um, and I love food and I love dietetics and I realized I was a lot more passionate about the mindset mm-hmm. around, yeah, self-worth and self-confidence and rewriting the narrative. Because I feel like that was the common thing with everything, whether it was food or my childhood, it was a lot of rewriting what I had come to learn about myself. So I got more interested in the
1: mindset aspect. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm very similar in the sense that I think we both like learning why people are the way that we are, or for ourselves personally, too. I like to know why I am the way I am and what is mm-hmm. causing me to feel stuck, or why what is happening that I need to rewrite or rescript for myself. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first listened to your podcast back in Jan of this year, I literally had a come to Jesus moment. As a dietitian, I spent my entire life thinking about my body, right? My food issues and intuitive eating was the bridge to where I am now at food freedom and food peace. But then I realized that at the very heart of it, it isn't necessarily about body image anymore. It is about self-worth and if you feel worthy and enough and- that your body isn't, your taking up most of the pie, that there's other parts to you and worthiness is constant regardless. Mm. I think what you've done so well is you've bridged that even farther, that, that other layer, that deeper layer of, okay, we've, we've gotten here. Now we got to find deeper self-exploration. We got to find yourself at a deeper level and learn to love yourself at your core. I think that's the work that you do so well. Oh, thank you.
0: Yeah. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I agree. I am very much like a deep diver. I want to know the ins and outs um, and to get to the core, because I feel if we can get to the core, then we can take uh, control over our lives or maybe control is not the word as much as agency is. Um, I, I look at it like there's a time and a place in life to be a victim to something or to come to the realization that you have been victimized. It's important, an important step. And then there's that next step where it's like you step into your own agency and you decide, how am I going to change things? How am I going to look at things differently? How am I going to rise up from this? And that is what I've always been interested in is That place, because I think what happens is a lot of people end up stopping short at that first part of the what's happened to me, Mm. and and it makes sense because it's important. But when we stay there, we feel pretty powerless Mm. in our
1: lives. What are some examples that really stand out to you over the years, whether whether it's yourself or your clients, that really was like a big aha moment or milestone?
0: Oh my gosh. I'm like forking through the memories in my head. Oh yeah. I know for, I can start out with myself for myself. One aspect was like the relationship thing. Cause I think that's pretty common for a lot of people where it's like pointing the finger at everyone else or why it's not working. It's them, them, them. And I was riding that train for a while. And then I came to a place of weight wait, the common denominator here is me, whether or not I like, I want to admit it. Sure. I've had my bad experiences that were not very fun or fair, but I'm the one who wants this thing. So how can we take a look at where I might be, where I might've been getting in my own way? So that was like an aha moment for me is like, hey, it's actually not bad to come to a a realization of how you've been getting in your own way. I think a lot of us are afraid to do that, to meet that because we think it means something bad about us Mm -hmm. or we've done something wrong. But in reality, you're just helping yourself get over a hurdle of something that maybe you just haven't been
1: seeing. In that example, how did you get in your own way and how did you get out of the way?
0: something I used to say, oh, this was a big one for me. It's like, so I date men. So my thing was like, oh, I can never find like men don't want to commit. They're never available. uh, They're not emotionally available and they're definitely not like ready for commitment. And then I had a moment where I would see people around. Like I recognize it's like, wait, but there are couples. So there are people that are in relationships, which means that there are men that do want commitment and they're kind of everywhere. You, you can't deny that. And it really humbled me. It was like this dialogue was happening in my head. It humbled me. And I was like, yeah, you're right. You're right. So if that's true, I had to take a look at, is there a part of me that's afraid of commitment? Is there a part of me that would rather not have it? Because why else? Why else would it be that other people are experiencing it? But I've decided to tell myself a story that they don't exist. Those types of men don't exist.
1: Mm. You were kind of, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. And I'm sure some of the behaviors you were, you were exhibiting were blocking the men from actually committing. Would you agree?
0: <laughs> yeah. You know what? I think it was both. I think it was the behaviors for sure. The behaviors I, w- I was exhibiting. It was probably attracting a type of guy who wasn't looking for that anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, or if they were interested, I might've done something to kind of sabotage and make them think, well, you know, maybe I wouldn't be interested in commitment with that person. Mm-hmm. And then I came to a realization that that doesn't really mean anything bad about me. It's just something like I can take a look at. Yeah. But it's hard for people. It's re- it can feel really personal. Mm-hmm.
1: A lot of things always start out feeling charged And the real milestone is if things can, you can feel neutral about things and you can really look at it rationally without judgment. I think this is for you a a similar sort of situation.
0: (laughs) Oh, I
1: agree 100%. Yeah.
0: If you can look at things neutrally, yes. I think that's where a lot of the change and transformation starts to happen Mm. is when you look at things neutrally.
1: Oh my gosh. Preach. Because the same (laughs) thing with food, right? And same thing with body. We feel that it's so charged, whatever like dairy, gluten, sugar, our body, our current bodies, whatever it may be. It always feels so heavy and so charged. But anytime someone breaks through the wall and starts to look at all foods as equal and start to accept everything as what they are, that neutrality is like the starting point of something great.
0: (laughs) Mm, Yes. Yes. I 100% agree. I love that. Mm. I feel like I have a, another story too, about a client, a past client. She wanted to buy a new car and she had this thing though, of it was like this story of, I can't have that though. Or it's, it's, it just won't happen for me. Um, or there's no possible way it could happen, um, because of like the price point and, What she, how she was looking at her circumstances. And so we did some mindset work around that, around what exactly it is that she desired, what exactly it is that she wanted. And the other side of it, which is what are your fears? Like, why do you... I think it's that part. The part of not looking... Most of us are not willing to look at the fears around something. We're willing to look at like what it is we want maybe, but not... Where is we're getting in our own way? And once she did that, that's when she just told me not that long ago, she was like, I got the car. I got the car that I wanted. I was like, yes, yes, I love it. I feel like it's being willing to look at the, the reason you're afraid of the thing that you want. Mm -hmm. And then also being willing and daring enough to say that I, I do get to have this thing. Mm -hmm. And there is a way, even
1: if I can't see it, there's a way. All of the time, these self-limiting beliefs stop us and we don't even know that's stopping us and these fears mm-hmm. are just holding us back. So I think what you're saying is really bringing awareness to the fear is the first step in unlocking the puzzle. Yeah. Easier said than done. Easier <laughs> said than done. I swear every day. Yeah. I the thing that this reminds me of is my work where everyone is having such a hard time with accepting where they are with their bodies. And Mm -hmm. body acceptance is like the biggest mountain to climb. Like it's an internal Mm -hmm. mountain. There is external forces, societal forces, beauty standards. It's just Mm -hmm. an uphill mountain basically. And the fear is if I don't change my body, if I don't get smaller or be this ideal body that I have in my mind, then I won't be loved. Then people won't find me attractive. People won't take me seriously. People won't think I'm smart or charismatic. The fear is so big, but how rational that fear is, is the big question mark that we're chipping away in my work every day. It's like Mm -hmm. that, that fear may not be so rational. And when you can understand that and develop self-worth outside of your body, that's where that's the hardest work in my, in my line. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, because
0: it is very layered. Like you said, it's, it's, what you think especially when you're talking about weight in particular it's society it's it could even be you know a romantic thing like you said will anyone love me that kind of a thing it's very layered there's a lot of things you're looking at and sometimes i even think with myself cuz i have a smaller body so i have no idea what it would be like or or what kinds of beliefs and feelings and fears people have that are in larger bodies. I, I think about that all the time. Like maybe in my mind, things seem a certain way because of
1: just the lens I have. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sometimes I say these things and I'm like, I am no, I really should not be the person to preach these things because I also come from a lens of being in a smaller body, but Mm -hmm. it all, it all makes sense in theory, but in practice, the world is much harsher and mm. these judgments are real. And so that I have to remind myself every day, but I love, I would love to learn more about your work and helping women get to that place of unconditional self-acceptance and unconditional worthiness. Like how, how is that work? What does that work like for you?
0: Yeah. So a lot of it, it, it's funny because it's a bit of a paradox with the unconditional self-acceptance. A lot of it is accepting the parts that you want to hide Mm -hmm. the fears, the jealousy, the anger, the frustration. I think in my space, my corner of the internet, I feel like there is a lot of conversation around accepting the good parts or maybe like the lighter aspects of you or the things that are acceptable Mm -hmm. Like, that's how you learn to accept yourself is, I don't know, it's like you become this, again, perfect version of yourself. But I invite my clients and students to take a look at the things you're trying to hide. And to listen to those sides of you, those parts of you, and make friends with them. Mm -hmm. And And saying that I don't mean like, you know okay, we're, as human beings, we're going to have a range of emotions, a range of thoughts, a range of experiences. We're never going to be in a state where we're not going to be angry or not going to be sad or, you know what I mean? All these things that we kind of try to hide from people. So it's, it's, if they're going to exist, you might as well get to know them. Mm. And I always say, it's like the people that you find to be the most confident are, Typically, the people that have decided to look at these parts of themselves and accept them in some sort of way. Mm -hmm. So, we do a lot of, we always do some almost like inner child work around your upbringing, taking a look at that. But the main focus is in what are these parts of you that are crying out at you or begging you to listen to them that end up coming out in maybe some ways that you try to reject? Like, again, like I was saying, the jealousy, the anger, all these kinds of things. What are they trying to say? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it's like in physics. um, I did not do great in physics, but I know one thing, which is what force you push upon something, an equal force comes back, right? Mm
0: -hmm. So Mm -hmm.
1: what you resist with all of your might is only going to push back at you with all of its might. And so the easier you just accept it, the more that it just feels more comfortable to be around. So I love that you work on this because I think all of us have things we don't love about ourselves and we would rather forget about it and never think about it. (laughs) Yeah. It's like this TED talk you might have um, seen it. It was called What if there's nothing wrong with you? And mm. one of the ther- this was a therapist that gave the TED talk where her clients came in and said, "I have this condition or I have X issue with people. I'm not a good person, blah 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 blah." And she would always respond with, "What if what if that's what if that's okay? What if there's nothing wrong with that?" So what? Mm. I think that's what kind of you're, you're doing too, is to diffuse the things that you don't like about yourself. The things that you see as problems that need fixing. Hmm. Yeah. It, what it is, is it, it's also like reframing the
0: way we look at this. So for example, a lot of the people that come into my world are clients and students. Um, people pleasing is something that they struggle with. So they may come to me with this idea that they want to get rid of the people pleasing aspect of themselves and when we try to get rid of anything it's kind of like that thing you said about the force it's just going to come back in some sneaky way another way that you don't even see it mm-hmm. or um you don't even realize it's happening when you're actively trying to push against something. But if you can take a look at that aspect of you, the people pleaser and get to know it and understand it, um, you would have a, it's almost like that people pleaser within you is going to not want to give you all of its antics and all of its like little sneaky things that it's trying to do because it's trying to get something out of you. It's trying to get a need met. Mm -hmm. So it, it exists for a reason but if you try to get rid of it, well, it's already feeling rejected. So yeah, it's similar to what you were saying. What if there's nothing wrong with you? I like to take the approach of what if these parts of you have a reason Mm -hmm. for coming up?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. That's so powerful. This actually reminds me of what um, one of my podcast guests had told me in a previous episode. And I think you might be able to help me because I had a hard time thinking through this. So Beatrice, what would you say to the girl that's thinking, I love who I am, but when it comes to what I look like, it's never enough. What comes to mind for you when that statement surfaces? Well, first I would ask,
0: so it's never enough. What is enough? Mm -hmm. I want to know, because- so many times when we, this is a very real thing, but when we're saying this, it's not enough or I'm not enough even. Mm-hmm. I, my first thought is like enough according to what scale, according to who, according to, is it when you say that, is it actually you who's saying that or are you thinking about um, certain looks or a certain way of presenting yourself that is associated, like, is it tied to something? Is it associated with someone? I don't know. Like, huh, so many thoughts are running through my head because I feel like when we say it's never enough, are, are you trying to almost, um, it's like, are you trying to get, get someone to see you a certain way? Are you trying to be um, perceived
1: a certain way when you say it's never enough? Mm. Ah, I think what you're trying to get at is, is this coming from an internal place of not enough or is this an external factor that's dictating this? And ultimately what is it that you want? Like what, what do you want to, to make enough? Like, what is that for you?
0: I feel as though we have ideas in our mind about something like I was saying before with the I'm not enough, or like you said, my looks are not enough. It's a statement we're saying, but do we actually know what we're saying mm-hmm. in a sense of that's why I would ask what is enough? Cause then it makes you think in your mind, wait, it, then it makes you see what you believe mm-hmm. about what is enough because you might not even be aware of it. You just think, okay, I'm not enough, but
1: what's enough. Let's Let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. Let's start there. I love that. I think what a lot of listeners would probably respond with is based on what my mom told me when I was a kid, based on family, maybe I was the chubbier sister or boys didn't like me in high school. In that way, I wasn't enough back then. And so I'm chasing this enoughness as an adult because I can change mm. theoretically my body if I wanted it bad enough. And then I'll, I will have the accolades of my mom and then I'll have the attention of the people I, I want and all of that will come true and I'll be happier. I think that's mm. what probably a lot of listeners would respond with. <laughs>
0: mm, yeah, probably so. Cause so the, and that's it's like then you can see enough is being associated with receiving something. Mm. Enough is being, a a lot of people, I do agree, feel that way, being enough. If I'm enough, then I get this. If I'm enough, I'll have this type of, these types of people in my life or this type of response from the people in my life. So it's not, when you really think about it, it has actually nothing to do with what you think about how you look Mm -hmm. and everything to do with what you can get as a result of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying anything bad by that, because I think as human beings, we just naturally, of course, if if we're feeling insecure, we're trying to get something. And it's also great to, to take a look at this type of stuff, because then you can see that it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with the way that you look. What's going on deeper
1: is there's a real desire to be loved and appreciated, That's exactly what it is. And I think if we only channel it based on the way that we look, the love and attention that we get is only based on the way that we look. Yeah.
0: Yes. And I think what happens is a lot of times people think, okay, we associate a with B. A lot of times, like looking good means I'm going to get this or have this. And so we as opposed to taking a look at the thing we want, which is, you know, to be loved or to be appreciated for who we are, we take a look at how can I get it? Mm -hmm. How can I get it? Okay, the looks might be the path or it's the most easiest path it seems like. When we're making associations, but but we don't even know if that's actually true Mm -hmm. and it's actually not true. Mm -hmm. But if we can focus more on, okay, I have a desire to be loved and appreciated. Maybe we can take a look at, you know, how can we meet that first with ourselves?
1: That is so powerful. And I imagine this is a lot of the work that you do with the relationship topics that you think about, because I know that's one of your big focuses. Yeah. So I'm wondering, how does this relate to the work that you do with the people um, in terms of relationships in your programs with your students? how to be in a relationship and be solid. Is that the stuff that you do too? Yes. Yeah. So right now
0: I'm uh, running a program called Woman of Desire, which is for single women who are interested in being in a relationship, specifically relationship with a man. And so, yeah. And, but this is like applicable for anyone. Yeah. It's very similar because what happens is actually, I just had a client the other night. She was just talking about, you know, I just feel like I'm not enough or when they stop texting um, or I, they lose contact. I feel like it's me. It's because I, they were up here, they were above and, you know, I just wasn't enough. And so a part of that conversation is like, let's take a look at, because a lot of times when we feel that way, we don't even like, if I asked you, or when I asked that client, it's like, what did you like about that person? Mm. And she's like, wait, I don't really think I really, I don't know. I can't really identify. It's like so many times we think we're not enough for someone else in a relationship because, um, we're not actually focused on what do we desire in a partnership or what are we actually looking for? We are more so concerned and consumed with what can we get? Mm. What can we get? So when it doesn't work out the way that we want it to, we start coming up with the stories like it's because I'm not enough or it's because it's this, it's because that. But in reality, we're entering dating Or entering relationships, like, what can I gain? Or how can this make me feel better about me? If I have someone, that must mean I'm worthy now Mm -hmm. because I'm in a relationship. But what about the part of actually relationshiping
1: when you get in one? It's honestly the same concept, isn't it, Beatrice? Where it's like, I think when I tell people, take care of your body in in a way that it wants to be taken care of, people are thinking, okay, so that will get me to the end point of whatever body goal. But if- if they get to that body goal and they're not receiving what they want, which is the love or the adoration or whatever it may be, then they, they go back to their old habits because they think, Oh, I didn't get what I wanted. So I'm just going to go back to my old ways and not take care of myself.
0: Exactly. Yes. It's the same thing. So it's like with, um, with that same example I was using, that client was saying it came down to this, believe she had where it's like everyone around me is in relationships and I'm not in one. I just feel like everyone has one except for me, which is a common thing I hear and I used to say the same thing myself. And then and I was like, okay, so now we got to the root of it. it it's not actually about the guy and the fact that, you know, it things didn't work out or the fact that he's, you know, he has this type of status or whatever. It comes down to I was hoping to get the relationship and like you said with the the relationship to food and I'm making changes. It's like, I'm hoping to get this mm-hmm. or this happen with my body. And if I don't get that, it's all for nothing. But if you, I would imagine you would probably talk about this with your clients. It's like, if you get to a place where you, um, find peace with your body as it is now, it's like you do the thing now, not later. And with the relationship thing, it's like, it's not that when you have the person, you, you're you happy because if you're just trying to get anyone, you're not going to be happy because you're going to be like, wait, this isn't what I want. He's not the type of person I, I want. He doesn't have these traits.
1: Well, yeah, because you you weren't looking for it. You were looking to get a need met. Exactly. I think what, you, what you're working on with people is getting to know yourself so well that you're you're so in tune with your own internal compass and you're happy where you are. So you don't compromise. You're not just latching on like a barnacle to anyone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and I would say even getting clear on the things that actually matter, the things that actually matter because we might have ideas. And I'm sure, again, with the body thing, we might have ideas about what a certain body type or a certain relationship or whatever is going to give us we have ideas but it's not that that you want Mm -hmm. it's how it's going to make you feel
1: yes exactly yes it's like once you get to that goal body like what are you going to do different with your life and why can't you do that now what's stopping you oh you okay cool let's get over this hurdle (laughs) yeah yeah exactly I think fate brought us together, Beatrice, because when I heard your podcast, I was like, I get you. I love this work. And lo and behold, I feel like our paths, the way that we approach our work, just are so in such parallel. It's, it's really wild. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is. It is is pretty parallel. So I know we're coming up on time. So I would love to have you share with my audience where they can find you, you know, more about what you do with your students and your clients. And if they want more support, where can they get it? Yeah. So you can find me over at the self love fix on Instagram,
0: um, or the self love fix podcast. And or on my website at futures So the work I do with my clients, I have two programs, two main programs. I run one is called self-love over codependency. That's coming up pretty soon where I help people shift from self-doubt to self-trust um, specifically those who have experienced uh, who identify with codependency or having had some emotional abuse in the past um, to learn how to set boundaries trust yourself to communicate what you need and to use your voice. And then I also newly started running woman of desire, which is my program for the single girlies who are looking to date better and to end up in a
1: relationship, a healthy relationship. I needed this back when I was in my early twenties. So thank you for doing this work, (laughs) Beatrice. I think a lot of people need this. Yeah. Yeah. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. And it was such a pleasure, Beatrice. Oh, thank you so much, Elise.